This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. To keep himself busy, Billy Barr started tracking the snow outside his door. And he's been doing it day after day, year after year, since the 70s. Barr lives in Gothic near Crested Butte. Eventually, scientists at a prestigious biology lab in town got wind of his records. And the meticulous data has now led to published scientific papers about the effects of climate change. Billy Barr, welcome to the program. Yes, hi. Thank you. So take me back to the beginning. You were living in a little shack in the middle of nowhere. What was your life like at that point, and what did you start writing down? Well, it was a day, a, a daily sort of just doing things to get by. I'd have to go out in the morning and get firewood and cut it up, and then if it was winter, I'd go skiing and stuff like that. I had no electricity, and I, I had a kerosene lamp, and and so I didn't have a lot of of things that nowadays might be more uh, time-consuming or entertaining. And since I lived there, you know, I started just writing down what I saw. And so, like, if you live in the city, you learn how to cross the street based upon car traffic and traffic lights. Well, I learned how to get by, when to ski to town, when to do things based on the weather. So I started keeping track of it and just had a little notebook and started writing down uh, what I saw every day. And then after a couple of years, I started to compare the same date. Every Saturday night, I'd sit down, you know, big event, Saturday night, would be. <laughs> I'd, sit, I'd sit down and I'd compare one year to the next. And it started to make a little more sense then. It was more like, oh, look, this winter has most snow of any of the last five years. Because when I started it, it was about five years into the record keeping. And then... Um, then as the years went on, and then the they, you know, computer stuff made it a lot easier, uh, I just kept the records going. It was to pass the time. Yeah, you know, it, 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 at the time, it was passing the time. Now it actually takes up a lot of time. Ah. Uh, there's more things to do now. But, uh, yeah, it, 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 was, it, was, it became something rather than a pastime. It's something I became very interested in. And until David picked up on the actual long-term numbers... It was just my curiosity at the time and my fascination with it. He picked up uh, the information and then did a lot more with it. And that's biologist David Enoe. Uh He actually is part of the uh, biology lab in this town. And, and it's not really a town. It's, it's, is it true it's a population of one, you, most of the year? Well, I'm the permanent one, but there's like three caretakers in the winter. So like yeah. this winter's population is four. And then in the summer, there's 160 when the uh, lab opens up. You've been keeping these measurements day after day, year after year, uh, and now it's on your website, and we have a link at cprnews.org. But what did you do with the notebooks uh, from back then? Do you still have them piled up at home, or are they uh, in the trash? What, What happened to them? No, I still have them, and I actually still use them because what I did, and remember, this wasn't scientific. What I did was I was, I would also make notes of, which animal tracks I saw, which birds I saw, and I never put that on the computer. So I still have a lot of data I can still transfer on and still use. Sadly, what I did with wind was none, low, moderate, high, which is not really that usable. Uh, so I'm not sure how I'm going to transform that into yeah. something that's, yeah. But um, but no, I still have those books. I don't. I, I use them now only for animal and bird sightings and other notes but not for uh, weather stuff. I do that directly onto an Excel file. What did you think when scientists got a hold of your books and thought you had something pretty important? 
Well, I thought it was interesting because, you know, from my standpoint, this was done out of a, uh, out of more of an aspect of curiosity. And then, of course, the weather, like I said, I deal with every day. So it's good to know about it. Um, but I was interested in what uh, what they found out and, and how how the changing things like when the snow melt starts earlier uh, and stuff like that, how it affects the things they've been studying, David's uh, plant phenology, someone else's uh, work on, on uh, marmots that emerge at a certain time of the year and so on. So I found it all very interesting. And this is all uh, in Gothic. It's the home to the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab. It, it's more of a field laboratory. Uh, how many scientists come in and out of there, and how has it been working with them, with your data that you began basically tracking kind of for fun? Well, I don't really know how many use it. I posted online. I get like just today, I got an email from a researcher who said, could you give me the precipitation data from the last few months? And so I send that, but I don't exactly know. I know how how uh, David you know, uh, uses, it, mm-hmm. uses it because I'm in close contact with him because he uses it often, but I really don't know the frequency of it. Some people do it, uh, but I really, I really couldn't say. Yeah. Uh, David, uh, welcome to the program. Uh, David Enoue, uh is a researcher at the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab. Uh, tell us what it's like having this record that was handwritten in notebooks. Uh, it's a pretty special data set. Uh, there are a number of scientists around the world now who are trying to f- gain insights into how the climate is changing. And one way that people do that is to try and find records. Uh, it's not too hard to find historical uh, uh, weather data, but it, it is pretty special to be able to find the kind of data that, that Billy's been collecting on a, a daily basis about snowpack. Uh, you can't, in many places, uh, find those data anywhere online. Uh, and to find that he had been recording these data uh, carefully uh, daily, multiple times a day for uh, about over 40 years now uh, was just a tremendous uh, tremendously valuable resource for the work that I do and that others do at the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab. Also, the fact that he'd been keeping track of things like, when did he see the first robin in the spring? When did he see the first marmot coming out of hibernation? Uh, Those records are also tremendously valuable, and we've published some uh, papers, for instance, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that attracted a lot of attention. The fact that robins are now arriving about three weeks earlier than they used to, and that marmots are emerging from hibernation almost a month earlier than they used to. Uh, we, We wouldn't have those insights without the kind of records that Billy's been keeping. With that said then, David, what has his data unveiled for you about the future for plants and animals in this area of central Colorado? Well, what his data, uh, together with the data I've been collecting on wildflowers, uh, allow us to understand what is the link between uh, something that Billy's measuring, which is uh, when the snow melts in the spring, and then uh, find out how that influences when plants come into bloom, how many wildflowers there are. And uh, that's uh, an important resource for pollinators. It's an important resource for uh, animals that eat seeds, for a variety of kinds of herbivores. Uh, flowering is also important to the Crested Butte economy because of the uh, annual Crested Butte Wildflower Festival. Uh, that town of Crested Butte has a designation from the state of the wildflower capital of Colorado. So there's a lot of interest in uh, what's happening with the wildflowers and also in projecting how that's going to change in the future. 
So by, by understanding what's been happening in the past, we can develop models about uh, how, what's going to happen in the future, given various scenarios that are impacting uh, the amount of snow that we get in the mountains and, and when that snow melts. And then can you extrapolate from this kind of localized data uh, more of a, a, a world look of, of climate change? Well, I think in mountain areas around the world, the same sort of relationship holds, that snowpack and snowmelt dates are very important for, uh, for the local, those local ecosystems. It, it determines uh, when plants come into bloom. It, it determines when animals become active. It depends. Uh, it influences when animals uh, migrate. And I think those general relationships are likely to hold true in mountain areas around the world. But there aren't really many other areas that have the kinds of records that we have. For instance, uh, about 44 years of data for the wildflower, the timing of flowering, and the abundance of flowering that, that we have from the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab, and, and then that combined with Billy's records. Those are, those are pretty unusual long-term records to have. Yeah. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking with Billy Barr, who takes meticulous notes on the weather and wildlife outside his door in the tiny town of Gothic near Crested Butte. Also with us is biologist David Enoue, who says Billy's data helps show the effects of climate change in Colorado. Uh, Billy, this is a real commitment for you to take these measurements every day of the year, multiple times a day. What keeps you going at this point? Is it the science? Is it helping these scientists do their job? Part of it is that, yes, I, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy getting the information, and, and I do enjoy being able to help uh, anybody who needs to use the information. It, it's uh, it's interesting, if nothing else, you know. Can you take a vacation every now and then? I don't go very far very much. <laughs> so uh, uh, it's not like, oh, no, I can't go away. It's almost like, oh, I can't go away because um, – I, I'm not much of a traveler. I, I go away for about a, a week a year. I go to cricket tournaments, and uh, that's the only time I've actually left the last seven, eight years. I've gone away for a week once a year to uh, watch a, a cricket tournament. But otherwise, you know, I'll go into town, but that's about it. I'll get to the cricket in a second. That's an interesting thing I want to touch on. But it, So if you're away, who takes the measurements? Just as, is that done by someone else? Well, two things. One is the caretakers will do it. They'll go up to my house and do the same measurements as I do. That's the the, the, the people who oversee the, the lab in the winter. Also, now there's a lot more, there's more equipment. So, for example, I can, I, I installed a webcam at the station mm-hmm. and put and put markers on the snowboard so I can log in remotely and look at the rulers. I have a whole series of rulers and look at them and get the current snowfall and then there's a precipitation bucket that measures the the uh, water content of the snow, um, and so I can get the information remotely. Um, but then when I get back, I double check it because my records over the years have all been manually manually done, and that, to some degree that's more accurate, at least for snow measurement than than equipment. But as as the equipment gets better. Um, it matches up almost exactly, actually. And David, you've helped him get hooked up with new technology, correct? 
Uh, that's right. I, I guess I'm interested in, in technology, and so I've been able to help him figure out uh, what kind of web camera might work, what kind of automated weather station might work. Uh, I want to talk now about the cricket. I, I heard you mentioned that a bit earlier. Uh, you have this image that that I have of you as kind of the snow-hardened mountain man with the beard and, and, and you know digging through the snow, but you have another love, and that's cricket. Talk about that. Why uh, Why cricket? Well, I, I've watched a lot of movies from India for a long time, and I love them. They're called Bollywood to some degree, but yeah. different ones. But uh, And they would always mention it, and I was just curious as to what they were talking about. So I started reading up on it and following it, and with the uh, streaming over the Internet, I started watching some tournaments from the West Indies because that's the closest really top-notch country in uh, uh, well, West Indies is a lot of countries, but they play as one unit. And I got really interested in it. I just really got to really like the game a lot. And so I started following it regularly. And you started a club there in Gothic. Is it, is it a club of one or two? <laughs> no, no. The, we had uh, probably 40 people play last summer. Oh. I mean, it's become, yeah, we had, we had our own league. We had four teams. And we, had, we played 12 matches uh, uh, each each team, and, and we played mostly in Gothic, but we played four matches down in Custard Butte at the high school baseball field. Um, and, and David, have and you so, uh, played in the cricket games that Billy organizes? I'm afraid I've been an, just an enthusiastic observer. <laughs> you gonna you gonna get him on uh, Billy? Get him on a team? Uh, it's mostly the 20 year olds who play. Uh, I see. David and I me see. Are slightly <laughs> older than 20. Yeah. How long, uh, Billy, do you think you're going to be taking uh, these measurements for for this laboratory? Uh, a couple more years, you're going to stop, retire, I guess, from taking measurements? Well, you know, that's almost out of my control. I have no plans to leave and no plans to stop, but it's all health issues. I mean, I'm healthy now, but I am 66. Um, so I plan to stay out here and keep doing it pretty much year to year, which is one of the advantages of now this increasing uh, uh, access to, to technology at the same site because now we're getting pretty close to being able to do it almost mechanically rather than manually. And and so if I could last on, I, I plan to be here, you know, 10, 15 more years, but if I can last on long enough that the, the instrumentation gets to be dependable and accurate, then I think that it could be taken over by well, pretty much anybody. And David, how has working with Billy or knowing him changed how you looked at the world uh, scientifically? Well, I guess uh, both of us are interested in long-term uh, projects. So uh, Billy's data that are over four decades long now and mine as well as the wildflowers, uh, those uh, interests have gone very well hand-in-hand. Hand. And it's just fortunate that, that I discovered uh, uh, a decade or two ago that, that Billy had those very important, very valuable long-term records. So we're happy to be collaborators. We're now co-authors on a number of uh, scientific papers. We're also uh, co-investigators on a National Science Foundation grant that provides some support for this project. I want to throw in just a, another mention that Billy's data have been very important for the Colorado Avalanche Center for, for decades. Billy mm. would go out every day and look at, at the avalanches in the East River Valley, which is quite active uh, in terms of avalanches. And so his records about uh, what conditions trigger avalanches have, have been very important for the whole state of Colorado and elsewhere in the Rocky Mountains. David, Billy, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you. David Inouye and Billy Barr are with the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory in Gothic near Crested Butte. And there's a new short film about Billy. It's called The Snow Guardian by Day's Edge Productions. You can check it out at cprnews.org along with all that data. Coming up, two men, one from Colorado, brave scorching temperatures, heavy snow, and near exhaustion to hike the entire length of the Grand Canyon. We'll ask them why. Coming up, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Very few people have ever walked the entire length of the Grand Canyon. In fact, more people have set foot on the surface of the moon. Basalt photographer Pete McBride and writer Kevin Fedarko of Arizona are now part of that elite group of hikers. They made the 700-mile journey clinging to narrow ledges, bushwhacking through brush, and searching for water every single day. The trek earned them a spot among this year's National Geographic Adventurers of the Year. Pete, Kevin, welcome to the program. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you. Uh, Let's begin with a clip from Pete's short documentary of your 2015 trek. I'm going to be honest. I'm not sure I really like hiking that much. I was told that uh, yesterday would be the hardest day. I I don't see any difference whatsoever between yesterday, the day before yesterday, the first day, and today. It's all one uninterrupted river of pain. You can't make me laugh when I'm trying to do these videos. (laughs) Pete, although you spent time in the canyon previously, you didn't really know what you were in for. You faced scorching temperatures, like we said, heavy snowfall. What goal did you have in mind when you decided to take this 700-plus mile trek through the Grand Canyon? Well, the goal uh, ultimately was to shine a light on this amazing park, which is actually under siege from basically all sides of the compass right now. There's a lot of development pressure happening. So the idea was if Kevin and I could actually complete this walk, that um, it may be the last time that we'd able to do something like this because there's potential this park could change. How so? Well, you have on the east side, you have a proposal to build a gondola, which is actually on the Navajo Reservation, but would go right into the heart of the Grand Canyon at the confluence of the main Colorado and the Little Colorado. Many believe that to be a very sacred place called the Confluence. And then you have a mega resort on the south rim with Water Ski Park. And then on the western side, you have um, an unregulated helicopter activity with up to 400, 500 flights a day that actually land right on the border of the park on the Wallapai Reservation, and um, but below the rim. And it's these are changes that are all poised to change the place and, and are actually happening. For instance, the helicopter incident is now the busiest teleport in the world, or arguably one of them, and it didn't exist 10 years ago. And we'll definitely get to some of those concerns you mentioned. But but first, Kevin, can you give us some of the logistics of this trip? It's only been accomplished a handful of times. It has, and there are some very good reasons for that, um, starting with um, the most salient fact of all, which is that there is no trail um, on which you can walk from the eastern end of the Grand Canyon at a place called Lee's Ferry uh, to the western end uh, at uh, the Grand Wash Cliffs. That's a stretch of the Colorado River flowing through the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It's about 277 miles long, but um, the main canyon is pierced by so many tributary canyons, each of which must be navigated into and out of, that the total distance you're looking at is well over 800 miles um, if you want to traverse that in the entire length of the canyon. And then you add on to that the fact that you have to carry food with you uh, and gear. 
Um, you've got about 50 pounds on your back. If it's the summertime or if it's the fall, you can be hiking in temperatures as high as 105, 110, even 115 degrees. And then over the winter, um, those temperatures plummet uh, quite uh, dramatically. At one point, Pete and I were um, hiking through 10 to 11 inches of snow, and it was 5 degrees out, and we were sleeping with our water bottles at night to try and keep them from freezing. Now, the first week, were you expecting all of that? Were you expecting or, or bracing yourself that that could be your life for months on end? No, I mean, I think Pete had a better handle on it than I did. He's much more experienced than I am. But I was I was really sort of ambushed by the brutality and the difficulty of, of the hike. I mean, it's not like I'd never done anything like this before. I'm an outdoor person. I've covered outdoor adventure stories for many, many years. But there's something about being inside the canyon um, and navigating your way, your way through an environment uh, where you're, you're having to move up and down um, tens of thousands of feet per day, each and every step is a kind of delicate negotiation between you and the landscape itself. The consequences of making mistakes can be incredibly severe, often involving plummeting off of a cliff that you're trying to navigate along the edge of. And then the fact that, you know, you're carrying so much weight, um, all of that sort of combined um, to, 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 to make the experience for me, in particular the first segment, just a, a, a total and uninterrupted nightmare. Pete? Pretty similar. I, they, there's a saying that uh, the canyon respects nobody. So Kevin and I have a, a deep history of doing magazine work in remote parts of the world. And and I'd been warned. We teamed up with some canyon uh, veterans that warned us and said, this isn't like nothing you'll ever experience. And But we kind of figured it was going to be like a hiking version of a raft trip. You know, we'd hike for uh, six, seven, eight hours and, and be approach the river, find water, you know, enjoy it. Kevin would pen some poetry. Total, totally departure from the reality. You're basically, you get pinned up on these cliffs. And some days we're walking 14 hours and it is just a total grind. And it first week of the trip, uh, we did, just to clarify, we did something or we did it in sections. It took us 13 months to do this. We ended up hiking uh, 71 days, but we wanted to see the seasons change. So that's why we did it over a, a year. By that first leg of it, uh, we we fled thinking we we might never come back. I mean, I the beat the place beat me in into, into a pulp basically but you've done uh, other trips uh, in the grand canyon you've uh, navigated the entire length of it in the colorado river and i'm i'm assuming that has its own challenges but this was completely different yeah i've i've spent a lot of time following the river and i've walked the the, the delta which is its own kind of nightmare at the end but this was it's just a whole nother level and i'm um, just the, really getting back to the no trail and, and bushwhacking and side hilling and you, you can't take your eye off the ball for two seconds or, you know, it's pretty easy to blow an ankle or, or slip or fall or tumble off a cliff. You know, it suddenly raises the game. And then really, it's just, you're you're basically driven by water, finding water. You can't be near the river the whole time it cliffs out. So sometimes you're 3,000 feet above it and you, we're, we're dependent on these tiny little like wafer thin potholes that mean you're going to, you're going to make another day or you're not. Did it get easier, uh, Kevin or or, or Pete, uh, that finding the water, you know, kind of figuring out how to find the trail, how to cut through the bush, things like that? Did it get easier? It did get a little bit easier in the sense that I think our bodies hardened up and uh, our our minds adjusted 
um, to the difficulty and the pain. But the canyon is also a very dynamic environment. And so I think we found that, you know, as we were surmounting and getting comfortable with one set of challenges, the canyon was throwing another set in our faces. I mean, a good example is the fact that by February, you know, um, these big winter storms were rolling in, um, and we found ourselves with with desert gear um, and tennis shoes, you know, hiking through 10 inches of snow, trying not to uh, lose our footing uh, along the edges of these cliffs, um, and, 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 you know, just dealing with all the challenges that come with incredibly cold uh, weather in the desert. And, and so I don't think that we ever got to the point, uh, I think Pete would agree with this, we never got to the point where it was easy or benign or where we felt like um, the canyon itself could be taken for granted. And the canyon doesn't, um, I mean, it punches you in the gut right out of the gate. Uh, it's hard pretty much from the first hour or two that you leave Lee's Ferry. And we discovered that that doesn't let up. It doesn't let you down easy. Um, I mean, every day was incredibly difficult right up until our very last day. How did the trip affect your relationship with each other? Uh, we hate each other now. <laughs> this is the first you've spoken <laughs> since that fateful trip. Hi, Kevin. No, no, we actually are we're, we're long friends. I mean, it stresses you at times, and um, there's a lot of logistical stress. But uh, we had some experts come in, that so it wasn't always just Kevin and I. We had some canyon gurus that were that are, came to join us for certain legs to show us these ancient. Uh, Anasazi roots and help us fu- figure out um, ways to get to water. So that that helped too. But I think it only strengthens our friendship. There's always there's always you know bickering sessions, of course. But uh, we're we're still buddies. We're speaking with Pete McBride of Basalt and Kevin Fedarko of Flagstaff, Arizona, about their recent journey into the Grand Canyon. Kevin, you say that the Grand Canyon is the most significant part of the national park system. Why is that? Well. Uh, it, it, I'll tell you first why it's not significant. It's not significant in terms of uh, the fact that it doesn't sit at the top of the lists by which we traditionally measure superlative things in national parks. It's not the first park. It's not the largest park. It's not the most visited park. Um, what it is, however, I think is the most iconic and most recognizable piece of landscape that we have in the entire system. It's impossible to imagine any citizen of this country, um, even I would argue children, who don't instantly recognize a, a photo and an image taken from this place. And for that reason, everything that happens inside the Grand Canyon, good, bad, bad or indifferent, matters tremendously. Um, the events that befall this place, the environmental and conservation victory to, victories that are won or lost, they tend to reverberate throughout the entire park system and throughout the entire system of public lands in the United States. And Peter, millions visit this park a year, isn't that correct? Yeah, uh, it's five and a half million visit the park uh, in the national park itself, and then there's another million that visit via the Skywalk, which is a new overlook built on the Wallapai Reservation on the western side. So there's a lot of people, there's a lot of talk about um, are we loving it to death, and I think this walk was trying to look at how we we see our our wild lands, our national parks, our wilderness areas, and how we, we embrace it, how we maybe ignore it, how we misunderstand it. Well, that's a fair point. The National Geographic spread has videos and interactive photos and really takes you into this place that many people haven't seen. Are you concerned that that will uh, create copycats, for lack of a better word? The hope is no. We don't, we're not doing this for people to follow us. That's the last thing we want. We're just 
doing this as a way we we actually refer to it more as um, an immersion, hmm. uh, as a way just to see and understand the what's happening on the rim, how it affects below the rim, and this this lost world that people don't often visit or understand between the river and, and the rim of this this pretty magical place, and and really just to highlight its fragility. You uh, spent a lot of time talking to people about development and and other concerns surrounding the canyon. Uh, There is that tourist development near the confluence of the Little Colorado and Colorado Rivers. Uh, Here's a clip of Lamar Whitmer, uh, one of the project's developers, and Renee Yellowhorse, one of the opponents, talking about the project. You're going to employ an awful lot of people in an impoverished area and help them save their culture. What's better than that? The confluence, Little Colorado River meets the Colorado River, where they meet. This is where life begins. This is what our grandmothers tell us. It is a sacred space, and we don't want to see the Disneyland on the edge of the canyon. You found that the concerns here are not simply black and white. Uh, We've heard uh, in, in that documentary about people who may not be able to get to these pristine places with this project would be able to see something and have maybe a life-changing experience. But of course, you also hear the, the, the Native Americans on, on their land and their concerns. What did you discover as you talked to people about this project? Well, I think we discovered that, I mean, as you said, that these issues don't break the down cleanly into black and white perspectives. Um, there's a complexity and a sort of multi-layered sense of confusion that surrounds them, but the clip you just played is significant. I mean, what you hear is a is a white real estate developer um, uh, stating that his project is capable of bringing jobs and uh, uh, saving a culture. And then you have a Navajo woman who actually lives in the place where he wants to bring this project, saying, we're not interested in the jobs because you're doing the opposite of saving our culture. Um, I think that illustrates the fundamental and underlying truth to these projects, which is that in addition to, you know, deep and very disturbing questions about the effect that they may have on the integrity of the landscape itself, there are a separate set of questions about what they're doing to these communities, most of them Native American, most of them struggling with profound economic difficulties. And so many of these projects serve as wedges. They drive a, uh, they're very divisive, and they, 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 they divide uh, communities that are already struggling, neighbor against neighbor, family member against uh, family member, tribal member against tribal member. And Pete, you captured a time-lapse image of helicopters and riverboats traversing a segment of the canyon. Can you tell us about that image and how it fits into this? Sure. So I spent um, two days doing this. I would, I would set up a camp um, on the, in the National Park side of the, of the river and look across where these helicopters are landing. And I, uh, July 9th, I did it 115 degrees in the shade. It was a little warm. But we counted 363 helicopters in eight hours. And I'm not against helicopters. Um, I'm not against the economic viability of the Wallapai tribe, which is it, working with the air tour industry to do this. But I do want to raise questions about what um, what is the balance, what are the right numbers. And so in order to do that, I merged, um, basically did a photographic merge to show all of the helicopters that passed through my frame. One helicopter represented one flight. And you get what looks like basically a beehive, just a locust moving through the canyon. And that's, of course, silent because it's a photograph, and so you can only imagine the noise that never seems to go away. And this is, this is basically right on and inside in some areas um, what's supposed to be operated as a wilderness area. 
And we posted that image at CPRnews.org. Uh, Kevin, could you hear the helicopters and the boats as you walked up to that area? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's possible to, um, it's possible, to, it's impossible to, 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 to overstate um, the kind of, um, the impact that that has on you when you've been passing through the pristine environment for weeks and months. It also underscores what Pete and I discovered, much to our surprise, is one of the I think one of the least understood, least appreciated, and most vulnerable treasures that the canyon contains. Right? This is an environment that most of us think of and describe in visual terms. Um, the colors of the light, the textures of the rock, the lines uh, and the shape of the canyon itself. But one of the most extraordinary attributes and assets that this place contains is auditory. It is the deep and dense and crystalline silence that prevails in so many places inside of that abyss. And when you are surrounded by that level of silence, when you become lost in it, um, it sets up an extraordinary contrast between it and all of the noise that surrounds us in our lives uh, in the world above the rim. And this is the thing that is, is destroyed when you have, you know, 300, 400, 450 helicopters uh, in an uninterrupted stream just, just blasting over the park and over the river each day. Do you think this is a good example, then, of maybe what's happening in other national parks across the country? Uh, we didn't even get to mining in the area of the Grand Canyon, but that increase in tourism, the, the sound pollution, maybe the light pollution, uh, how is that going to play out across other parks in the system? I, I think that this is representative of, of parks throughout the whole system. It's also representative of just how we treat wild spaces. And it I think a lot of it is comes down to how we see these places. Do we see them as places that we should leave them as they are and and don't touch them, or do we see them as more amusement parks? And Kevin and I have done a lot of thinking on it. I mean, there's there's hundreds of amusement parks around the United States. There's only one seventh natural wonder of the world. That's the Grand Canyon. But isn't part of the role of the National Park Service to allow people who may not be able to experience these things to experience them? Well, absolutely, and and you've put your finger on one of the central paradoxes that hangs over a space like the Grand Canyon. Um, access is essential. Access is the thing that allows us to touch and be touched by these wild spaces. But if you are providing access um, and in the same breath doing damage to the very thing that is worth going to in the first place, you've undermined um, the whole premise that it has value, and so this is, I think, one of the um, one of the things that needs to be looked at and questioned. The idea, the, the argument that the developers are invoking that they are providing value by giving access without acknowledging um, that a tramway, which is capable of delivering ten thousand people per day to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, a section of the bottom of the Grand Canyon that sees twenty six thousand people over the course of an entire year, the quota. Um, of that tramway will exceed the traffic that that part of the canyon sees in the course of an entire year in two and a half days. And the damage that that does um, to the environment and its ability um, to, to provide an experience, an undiluted experience of wildness for all of us, that is a component of these projects which needs to be examined and questioned. And it's a discussion that could go on for, for much longer, but we do have to wrap it up. Uh, Kevin, Pete, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Thank you so very much. much.
Photographer Pete McBride of Basalt and writer Kevin Fedarko of Flagstaff, Arizona, are among the finalists for National Geographic's Adventurers of the Year. We've posted photos, videos, and more of their trip along the Grand Canyon at CPRnews.org. Coming up, Aurora Native uh, is making it big in Hollywood. She wants to bring more diverse characters to the screen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'd like to thank the Academy. Aren't words everyone gets to speak? But Aurora native Gita Malik has, not for getting an Oscar, but for landing a screenwriting fellowship. The Academy Nickel Fellowship is quite the award. Past winners include the screenwriter of Aaron Brockovich. Gita lives in L.A. and has her own film company called Shaitani Films. The fellowship is one of many accolades she's received over her career, and she joins me from Culver City. Gita, welcome to Colorado Matters. Hi, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And congratulations on your win. Thank you. Thanks. You won the Academy Nickel Fellowship for a script you wrote called Dinner with Friends and received a $35,000 prize. Uh, What is Dinner with Friends about? Okay. Excuse me. Dinner with Friends is about a 19-year-old girl who has gone away to college and who comes back home and is kind of seeing her family through these new sort of adult eyes. Um, And it's all set in this world of Indian dinner parties, which is a world I grew up in. And she slowly starts to see through people's... um, There's a lot of gossip. There's a lot of backbiting. And she starts to understand why people are behaving the way they are, including her own parents. um, And she discovers a secret about her mother. Her mother has this past feminist uh, life that she's kind of let go and, and has become a housewife instead. And so through her daughter, she's galvanized to kind of uh, regain that power and regain her feminist identity. Is this inspired by your childhood in Aurora? Yeah, yeah. A lot of it is taken from there. Yeah? Yeah. How long did you live there? I was there basically from birth until I was 17. So I think we moved there when I was one or two. And it reflects in, in the writing that you do. Uh, talk about your youth in Aurora. What, it's one of the most diverse cities in Colorado, but I understand it wasn't the case when you were a kid there. Yeah. Um, growing up, it didn't feel as diverse as it does now. My mom is a teacher at my old high school at Overland High School. Uh, she just retired, actually. Uh-huh. Um, and when I was growing up, I, I feel like there weren't that many Indians. We had sort of a, a, a group of maybe 20 to 30 families in Aurora. And then I, I, you know, I'm trying to remember, I think my sister and I were basically the only Indians at our high school, <laughs> um, maybe a couple more. And I know that's changed a lot now, which is great. It's really become diverse, but it didn't feel like that growing up. You saw all these families at dinner, but then at school, it was just you and your sister. Yeah, yeah. I felt like a big divide that way. You named your film production company Shaitani Films, and that's Hindi for getting up to mischief. Did you get in trouble a lot as a kid? Did that have any role in the naming of this company? Yeah, I mean, I was a mischievous child, yes, from what I've heard from my parents and my grandparents. Um, and uh, Shetan, you know, it's it's uh, it means little devil, uh, but in a very affectionate way. So my grandfather used to always, I remember him always calling me little Shetan and, you know, rubbing my head affectionately. But I, I definitely got up to some trouble. So that's where it comes from. Why name your film company based on that idea? Um, I have always been interested in comedy. I really like this idea of you know, kind of pushing the envelope and having a little edge to whatever I'm doing. And I feel like making mischief is a really good way to get a message across as well. Um, I feel like in a lot of films that I see, if things are so heavy handed and they have, you know, a very strong message and you kind of pound it over the head with it, um, it's not quite as effective as if you sort of slip it in subversively or you do a satire, you know, or you add a little bit of humor or mischief to, to your idea. I feel like that's a better way to communicate for me. 
Here with Colorado Matters from CPR News, I'm speaking with Gita Malik. She grew up in Aurora, but now works in L.A. as a filmmaker. Malik recently won an Academy Nickel Fellowship, a national screenwriting contest hosted by the same folks that run the Oscars. I understand you watched a lot of Indian films with your parents growing up, but you didn't see it as a career option then. What changed for you? Yeah, I mean, it was something that was always part of our lives. Um, my parents were always watching movies, and, you know, there's always music in our lives, um, lots of art in our lives. But it was never something that was a career option. I mean, my parents are both hard scientists. Uh, pretty much everyone in my family are scientists. They're doctors, they're engineers. Um, there wasn't necessarily a role model within my own community uh, to to see a filmmaker who looked like me, um, or even on screen. It, it was very uh, rare to see an Indian face on screen at that time. Um, and I think what changes, you know, I, my mom also watched a lot of art films. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like when I saw Mira Nair or I saw Deepa Mehta, when I, when I started to see Indian filmmakers uh, in that sense, and I was like, oh, this could actually be a viable career, um, that's when it, it started to change for me, when I saw some examples outside of my own community. And are those uh, uh, Bollywood films, actresses and actors in Bollywood films? No. Um, so Mira Nair and Deepa Mehta, they're filmmakers who kind of worked outside. They're mm-hmm. not Bollywood filmmakers. Uh, and um, and But, you know, the, the people I saw on screen in these Bollywood films, it always felt like that was India. That wasn't necessarily Indian American, which is what I obviously am. Um, so it was hard to find where I would fit in as a creative person in that world. Was there a tug between your parents wanting you to go in a different direction and you wanting to go in your own? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I went to college. I did my first two years in electrical engineering, uh, which was crazy because so I... So far away from where you are now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. And not something I enjoyed at all. Um, and uh, I was also, you know, I liked physics. I liked certain aspects of science. So I thought, you know, maybe I could latch onto those and make a career somehow. But I'd always been a writer. I mean, since I can remember, I still have stacks and stacks of old poems and short stories I wrote when I was a child. And so my entire life, that was my way of expressing myself. And that was where I really felt most at home. So um, halfway through college, I switched my major to English. And I remember that being quite a battle uh, because, the, the, you know, the, the valid question is, how are you going to earn a living? Mm. And I had no good answer for that. <laughs> Even now, I don't know what the, what the answer is to that. Um, but it was, I definitely felt like that was something I had to pursue. I, I just couldn't imagine being happy as an engineer. You mentioned uh, uh, Indian filmmakers and, and Indian actors and actresses. Uh, do you feel there are American Indian actors and American Indian uh, directors? And, and where do you fit within that uh, that group? Yeah, yeah, there are. I mean, I feel like... Um, Indian American, yeah. Indian American, yeah, yeah. There are... It's it's changing a lot now. I feel like in the past 10 years especially, it's really it's really changed. I feel like there's a lot of Indian faces on TV as far as actors and actresses. Um, even in film, we're getting more visibility. And I do feel like filmmakers and actually the industry, which is great, which I think is reflecting, you know, reflective of the Nickel Fellowship. I think they are looking for those diverse voices more so than ever. And so I can see myself fitting in, yes, as an Indian American and as a woman director, but also just as someone who creates content that other people can also relate to. It seems like your work up to date, including a 2011 dark comedy called Troublemaker, has mm-hmm. a personal, even intimate feel. Would that be accurate? Yeah, excuse me. Yes, that's definitely accurate. Everything um, I write so far has been, you know, somewhat from my own personal experience. So, Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Gita Malik grew up in Aurora. She's now a writer and director in Los Angeles and recently won an Academy Nickel Fellowship, a national screenwriting contest hosted by the same institution that gives out the Oscars.
choreographer Cleo Parker-Robinson has traveled the globe, and her office is filled with treasures she's picked up along the way. The memories she's gathered inspired her annual winter show called Granny Dances to a Holiday Drum. It's a blend of live music, dance, spoken word, and 15 cultures. This is the show's 25th year, and it's back in its original home, the Cleo Parker-Robinson Theater near downtown Denver. Parker Robinson says the show celebrates Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, the Chinese New Year, and the Celtic Yule Time. It's a place where love and peace and harmony and people of all cultures and all backgrounds not only try to understand each other, but celebrate each other. Parker Robinson dances in the show every year as Shakti, Granny's guardian angel. She shared some of the show's music with us. This is from the first act during a Liberian dance called the Fanga. Granny Dances to a Holiday Drum runs through this weekend at the Cleo Parker Robinson Theater in Denver. It's the show's 25th anniversary. Finally today, holiday music from Fort Collins' sister act, Shell. Not long after releasing a hit record, the band has put out a holiday-themed EP called Winter Fairyland. It features covers and some originals like this one, I Know You're Real, St. Nicholas. I know you're real, St. Nicholas I know the tales are true You thought I was sleeping But I was watching you I know you're real, St. Nicholas I saw your stars were shining I was watching Fort Collins band Shell with I Know You're Real, St. Nicholas. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks to Michael Hughes and Stephanie Wolf and all the technical crew working behind the scenes this morning to get this show on the air. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producer is Rachel Estabrook. Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher are our producers. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. And email us. Click contact at the top of cprnews.org or comment at the bottom of articles on the website. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. I heard your nimble feet as soft as my-